is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over our great country. We've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. Some people focus on the fact that this village has beautiful RVs, and gorgeous small homes designed by the finest architects in the nation. But that's not this place's secret sauce. No, it's the people who live and work at Community First that make it transformative. To get a sense of that, we'd like you to hear a story from Larry Crawford, the fellow who fixes anything and everything that breaks in this community, from air conditioners to trucks. Here's Larry. I bought myself a new truck, and I've always been a kind of the base model truck buy-in kind of guy. And But I'm a little older now, and I have a little more money, so my wife went shopping with me, and she's like, oh, I love this leather. So what I ended up purchasing was the Longhorn Laramie diesel, has all these bells and whistles on It's got things on the dashboard I still don't know how to work. Uh, it's four-wheel drive. It's got fancy wheels and running boards, and it's just a really a luxury pickup truck. And because we're in Texas, it's just like a... I don't think it's a written law, but it's kind of like a law that when you get a new truck, you got to go show your buddies. You know, you got to go show the guys you work with your new truck. So I'd had the truck about a week. And uh, so I decided to drive it to work and show it to my buddies. And the end of the day, my wife called me and she, she asked me, she's like, hey, can you go to the grocery store and pick up this one item? And that's several years ago. I don't remember what it was. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I, I leave work and... I'm heading down Loyola because there's a HEB grocery store at uh, Springdale and 183. So I was heading that way and I saw this homeless guy that I that I had known for several years walking down the street. And so I just stopped in the middle of the road, rolled the window down. I was like, hey, Mike, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to HEB. And I'm like, jump in. So we go to HEB and, and I'm like, I just need one thing. I said, I'm going to go and get what I need and then I'll just wait for you at the truck and I'll take you because he lives in a camp uh, not too far from here and uh, I'll take you back to your camp and uh, so I, I get my one item and I'm sitting out waiting for him to show up and he comes out of the store with two boxes of beer and and um, he's, a, he's a profound alcoholic and uh, I mean without exaggeration I've seen him falling down drunk at 7 a.m. Uh, He's a lovely human being. He just has lost control of his drinking. Anyhow, so I drop him off at his camp. I go home, fix dinner, and the day just ends. I go to bed. And about three weeks later, we do this thing here at the village. We call it Reach Out. And basically, get a bunch of chartered school buses, and we go get the homeless people from the camps in downtown. We bring them out here to the village. We let them take showers, get haircuts get a real good hot meal, not fast food, but good hot meal. Uh, you know, there's somebody here that's like nurses and doctors and check their blood sugars and their diabetes and their blood pressure and do all of these things. And um, so anyway, I'm standing over by the corner of the shop and and I see Mike get off the bus and he's screaming at me. And, uh, and it's not uncommon for homeless people to scream at me because they all want the same thing from me. Uh, I'm a smoker. They want to, hey, you got a cigar? Do you have a cigarette? Do you have, you know? And so I knew that's what Mike wanted. So I'm just 
sitting there kind of silently and I said, okay, hurry up, Mike, so you can get a smoke from me and I can go on with my business. And he's, as he's approaching me, he's maybe 10 or 12 feet away and I could already smell him because he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he drops down to his knees in front of me and he takes this old ratty backpack off and he's like, man, I got you something. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me something? He said, man, I bought you a present. I'm like, man, you have to get me nothing. And he's like, no, no. He said, I see how you treat people on the streets. He said, and I wanted to give you a gift. And he said, I noticed in your old truck, the truck I drive to work that's sitting out there by the shop right now every day, it's a, an 05 Dodge Diesel. I have the black velour interior, which in 2005 was pretty nice. And um, anyhow, he said, I noticed in your old truck that you had a Bible that had the same color cover as the interior of your truck. And I'd, at that point, I'd been driving that truck for like 12 years, and I didn't realize that the cover on my Bible and my black upholstery were the same color. It never occurred to me. Anyhow, so he had ridden in my new truck, and he said, I got you a Bible that has the same color leather as the leather on the seats in your new truck. And he said, I went to the Bible store. He said, I didn't even realize there was more than one kind of Bible. He said, I told the lady, just sell me the most popular one that had this color leather. He said, the receipt's in the box. He said, and the lady said, you can bring it back and get whatever kind of Bible you read if this is not what you want. And I can tell you right now, it wouldn't matter which Bible. It could have been any, it could have been a Bible in a foreign language. I wouldn't have traded it back in. And at that moment, man, my eyes started leaking. I wasn't like crying or nothing, but I was just like, I just like couldn't believe that this, guy which is like the poorest of all the poor people that you ever met had bought me a bible to match the interior of my truck and and the thought kept going through my head it's like man I, this guy could take this back get his money back this i'm driving an expensive truck i live in a nice house i could go buy a box of bibles and wouldn't even miss the money but i, and I just get something kept telling me, it's like no you need to take this gift from this man and and i did and I still have that Bible still in my truck. And um, uh, it was a lesson for me in the unbelievable generosity of human beings that man probably panhandled for weeks to be able to get enough money for his daily survival and then be able to accumulate the $77 he paid for that Bible. Um, not realizing that he probably could have just went to the local church and asked for one. They probably would have gave him one for free. He didn't get that. But, but anyhow, so the struggle that man went through to get that, uh, it's one of my most valued possessions. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Great job on that, Stan. And what a message of generosity that can come from anywhere. And we do these stories about the homeless, about prison inmates, right next to entrepreneur stories, stories about billionaires, because in the end, these are all great American stories and show our heart and our soul. Larry Crawford's Bible Story, here on Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. And we've done a whole bunch of really good ones, folks. From Jack Marucci, who created a baseball bat for his boy, and it turned into, well, a force in the baseball bat industry. Uh, straight up to Bernie Marcus's story, and he's the founder of Home Depot. He was fired at the age of 49 from a former job, had an idea about this new company, which would become this gigantic, iconic company. Also, Mario Andretti's story, which is just terrific, about his life, not only in racing, but in business, and creating this monstrous enterprise, this powerful force in the racing business called Andretti Racing. And so many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look for our American Dreamer series. And if you have an American Dreamer story, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, all of our material sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And we now bring you the voice and story of one of their members, one of Job Creators members, Gary Rabine. I truly believe that the best entrepreneurs in the world usually start with nothing. They don't inherit millions of dollars. Usually they have an idea, they started with nothing, they take risk, and they probably go back to nothing often. Four or five times they get knocked in the teeth, they lose everything, they get back up because nothing isn't that terrible for them. They've been there before. And I know plenty of people that start with a good amount of money and they lose it and they can't get back up. I mean, they never knew what it was like to have nothing and it's earth shattering for them. So the blessing I had was, you know, we didn't have a lot and when I started business, I started with a few thousand bucks, and I can go back there any time. I enjoyed the place I was in life then and a few other times in my career that I got knocked in the teeth and really almost bankrupt. And every time it happened, I'd look at my wife. I said, it's looking pretty bleak. You know, we had a lot of dough and now it's not looking so good. And she would go, uh, well, you know what? We can always buy that same house you bought before we got married. It's a $70,000 house. I'll remodel it. We still got our faith and we've got our family and that's all we need. And so we got down to nothing a few times. I counted 25 businesses over the last 20 years that we started, and a bunch of them didn't work out. And fortunately, we've always had something going on that did pretty well. I run to people that I haven't seen in a long time or they don't know me that well, and they say, boy, you got a horseshoe in your butt. Everything you do turns to gold, Rayvine. Well, they're, they're only seeing the things that look like they're doing pretty well. But either way, that's okay. I think the most successful people in the world are people that know what it's like to have nothing, so they're able to take risk. So I think it's a blessing. We grew up in a house, we had six kids in our family. My dad worked in a factory and did side jobs. He started a tree business, selling firewood, and started doing landscaping, and my dad was a jack of all trades. He was a workaholic. When he married my mom, she had three kids already. Then they had three more kids within about a four or five year period after that. So he had six kids as a very young guy, he was only like, you know, 25 years old maybe with six kids, right? So at that point, he knew he, he had some mouths to feed. <laughs> so he was a very uh, thrifty guy, one of those hardest working, toughest guys you'll ever want to know. So he taught us work ethic in a big way. My brother and I were the youngest of six. I had four older sisters. All my sisters worked just as hard as we did. They cut trees, they split firewood. They were built like bodybuilders. These girls were tougher than any guys I knew. I was embarrassed. I, they used to beat up on me all the time and throw me around. I was like, God, I'm getting beat up by, by girls all of Every day of my life, these girls are pushing me around. I felt like kind of a wimp. And then I got to high school and realized my sisters could kick the crap out of most of the best wrestlers were afraid of my sisters. <laughs> so I didn't feel so bad. And I ended up being a pretty decent wrestler myself because I get pushed around a lot. Anyway, we lived in this house in Fox Lake, Illinois. 
and the chain of lakes is dominant around Fox Lake. These lakes back then were shallow, septic-infested lakes. There wasn't sewer or anything around these lakes at the time. And the soils didn't allow, like your septic, to filter down into the aquifer like good soils allow. And my dad was really sensitive about the septic field being overloaded. So if it was above 60 degrees outside, we were bathing in the chain of lakes, the four-foot mud-bottom lake. On a clean day, you might, if you put your hand under the water about six inches under, if it didn't rain in a while and it was a nice sunny day, you might be able to see your hand if it's six inches under the water if you're lucky. But most days, there's a green film on the top of these lakes. There's anywhere from a quarter inch to a half inch thick. So, but my dad believed that water was clean enough, and we weren't going to stress out that septic system putting all that shower water in the septic. So from about 10 years old on, if it was 60 degrees or more, he had a bar of soap at the end of the pier and a bottle of suave shampoo. And the nice thing about ivory soap was it floated, so you wouldn't lose it, that murky water, right? But bottom line is, we didn't take a lot of baths, so maybe, maybe once every couple weeks in that chain of lakes. <laughs> the crazy thing is, uh, we used to think we were stark white kids, my brother and I, and we thought we were pretty tan in the middle of summer, but there was a scuzz built up, <laughs> built up on our arms, around our necks and stuff. And we didn't know why friends or neighbors, their parents didn't want their kids hanging out with us. We thought we were pretty good kids, right? But for some reason, in the back of our mind, we knew that their parents were telling their kids, don't hang around those Rabine boys, they're bad news. <laughs> but anyway, it was the way we grew up, right? And I think we ended up to be tougher for it. And guess what? I don't think I get sick as much as most people. I think we, we built up a pretty good immune system. <laughs> 15 years old, we moved to a new place. My dad needed more acreage. He needed some land to put some dirt on because he's piling up dirt in our front yard and wood and it looked like Sanford and Son. We had all this stuff in our front yard, a little aisle going down to the front door of the house. It was a little bit embarrassing. And you know, I actually told my dad that one day. And he, I know I bothered him and I said it. But I said, Dad, I don't want to bring friends home. It's embarrassing. They laugh about our house being like Sanford and Son. Yeah, what are you talking about? That's money. That's how you make money doing all that. And I said, yeah, I, I get it, Dad, but uh, still, it just, it just doesn't look good. And we were in a normal subdivision, like you know, 50 foot wide lots. He was a tough guy, so people didn't gripe about him too much, or he would confront him. So they let him do things he wanted to do. But finally, he moved to a place in the boondocks with like 10 acres and had area to put dirt and all that kind of stuff. So my brother and I were in the bathroom looking at this house, and my brother and I just eyeing up this bathroom, a nice tub, you know, and a nicer bathroom, a little bit bigger. And my dad's looking over his shoulder and he says, What are you guys looking at? And I said, well, damn it, we have a pretty nice tub here. He goes, this is like May. He goes, are you kidding me? It's 65 degrees out. He goes, we got a creek. There's a creek only about 100 yards away from here. It borders our property. A bar of soap and the bottle of shampoo is waiting for you. He goes, get your ass down there and take your baths if you're going to take one. So sure enough, we did. Two months later, my brother and I are out there bathing. And it's a really hot day. You know, it's like 100 degrees out. And we're cleaning up after working that day. All of a sudden, my brother says, Gary, there's, there's, there's something floating down the creek there. It looks like, uh, it looks like cow crap. And, you know, we were kind of hillbilly kids, so we didn't say crap. My dad swore a little bit, and we swore a little bit for kids, but he said, it's cow crap, right? And I said, ah, come on, John, it can't be that. Boy, I said, boy, it does look like it, but, but, but it's awful big, you know. It's awful big to be crap, you know. And he, and he said, I think, I, think, I think it is. It looks just like, a, you know, big turds, you know, and, I said, ah, oh, come on, I can't. We go up to it and we're sticking it with a stick and stuff. Boy, it does kind of look like it. We stomp up to the house. I said, Dad, we're not taking our bass down there anymore. We think there's crap floating down the creek. And he said, oh, come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. 
So he walks down to the creek, he looks up and down the creek, and he looks up at the bank on the creek, and he says, that's not crap, because that's just peat moss eroding from the banks. That's all that is, it's peat moss. So he's our dad. We believe him, right? you got to believe your dad. So for the next four years or so, we continue on, and you know, we're swatting these things by us while they go by on hot days usually, only the hot days that you see these things floating down. And 19 years old, I get home working on a Sunday and got a voicemail. A friend of mine wants to know if we want to go canoeing. I said, you know what? I think I want to do that. My dad listens to the voicemail. Hey, I think I'll come with you. We got two canoes. I said, all right. Sounds good. Let's do it, Dad. Come on with us. And a couple hours later, we're coming about a mile north and west of our house. And and I make the corner. We're racing. We're going as fast as we can. Myself and my buddy are number one. We're in the front. And everybody's behind us. I'm feeling pretty good and kicking their butts, right? A lot of competitive guys, including my dad. And we turn a corner, all of a sudden, there's like a hundred head of cattle in the creek, all over the place. And all I'm thinking about is how we get around these things, man. They're, they're huge. They're all over. There's hardly any room, right? So we get up next to them. We're trying to navigate around them. All of a sudden, they're dropping bombs everywhere. And I'm looking at these things as they're dropping them. And I'm saying, I, run, I, go, I figured it out. I look back at my dad and said, Dad! We told you that was crap falling down the creek all those years. And he gets up next to him and he goes, Boy, I guess you were right. <laughs> he laughs. But again, I think, I think all that you know, helped our immune system out, right? So we didn't, bathe, we didn't have to bathe in the creek anymore after that. Well, there you go. And when we come back, more from Gary Rabine. This unique, unique voice, one heck of a story, an American dreamer's story, and they come from everywhere, our American dreamers. More of Gary Rabine's story after these messages. Here on Our American Stories and Our American Dreamers series and Gary Rabine's story. Let's pick up where we last left off. My dad told me I was too stupid to go to college. And he said, you don't need college. You're too stupid, you know. I believed I could probably, right? But I was like, yeah, you, you might be right, but I wasn't going to college. My grades weren't that great. And I finally did pretty well my senior year, but that only put me in the top 75% of the high school class. And that was only because I wanted to make sure I played football and I, I wrestled. I was a captain of both my teams. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get kicked off the team for bad grades. So business came natural to me. I watched my dad work so hard and taught me how to make money, taught me how to outwork anybody around me. So in high school, when my friends are sitting around the in a study hall and they're all talking about what college they're going to, I was a little bit embarrassed, right? This friend of mine said, you know, where are you going to school, Gary? And this friend of mine was a neighbor, so he kind of knew where I was going. But I said, you know, I'm not going to college. I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to either do landscaping or paving. I'm going to start my own business eventually. And, and he kind of chuckled and he goes, see, you're going to be a ditch digger then, huh? 
And back then, you know, the, the movie Caddyshack came out only a year before, so that was kind of a term that was used in that movie. Looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. And he goes, the world needs ditch diggers, Ray Bye. And then in front of, in the study hall, around a bunch of friends, most of which were going to college, he goes, so Ray Bye's gonna be a ditch digger. <laughs> you know, cackling like, right? I'll just never forget that moment because I was a little embarrassed. So I was partnered with my dad. At first I was trying to do this to get away from my dad. I loved my dad, but he was a, he was a tough, hard ass of a guy and he was really tough to work for. My goal was to get away from my dad in a business that he didn't like, and I, f I figured out, you know, I liked paving and he didn't like it. So what I said, I want to be the best of the best, you know, and he's like, oh, there's no money in paving. I'm like, perfect. I'm glad you think so, because I want to go after this business. My goal was to just kick the crap out of anybody in the business, right? I, I looked to the best people in the marketplace. I watched them. I mimicked them. If I saw a paving crew pave, I was watching them. If I saw a, a grading crew, I would watch them. I would look at the equipment they're using, time them, figure out how many square feet are they doing per hour. And within five, six years, we were doing better work than them. And we got to be bigger than them within 10 years. Estimating in sales, I always went to eat at the restaurants with the worst parking lots, and I'd measure them up and have a price ready for the manager, or the owner. You know, after I ate, and I'm, you know, show that I'm a patron. Now that I'm a patron, I got to tell you, your, your parking lot looks terrible. Let me help you out. It was easy sales. The biggest job of my career at the time. The job was about a fifty thousand dollar job, so it was really a big deal to me. We're on the job, and I was very conscious that we had an area that was kind of soft in the parking lot. And when that happens, either undercut that area and replace it with dry material, and it takes a long time and it costs a lot of money, or you have to thicken up the pavement to make up for that soft area, right? So instead of a two inches of base asphalt, you go to three inches. So we're doing that base asphalt, and my dad's driving truck, but my dad wasn't really one that, to, to jump out there and pave the parking lot. See, but, but one day he jumped out uh, of the truck waiting for the other truck to dump, and he saw that we were paving a little thick on this job, and he said, uh, holy crap, you guys are paving way too thick there. What are you doing? I said, hey, Dad, don't. Dad, this is purposeful. We're doing this because it's soft here. Bullshit, he says. I, we're, we're not going to pave it that thick. He, he grabs a shovel and starts scraping the asphalt off the surface of the asphalt. I said, whoa, whoa, you got to stop. You're going to mess up this asphalt. And he goes, I ain't stopping out there. Come here, help me, guys. And he tells the guys to try to help him. One guy comes out with a shovel. He starts scraping out. I said, no, no, you can't do this. We're just going to have a puddle in this area. It's, it, you see, if, we, if it's two inches here, we still got to go over the, instead of, a, instead of an inch over top, now we got to go, you know, two inches over this. And, you're, and, and it's too thick. You're going to have a pond in here. It compacts more where there's two inches adjacent to one inch, right? Anyway, so we're arguing. And, and, and I said, Dad, come here, come here. I pulled him away from the asphalt. And I said, Dad, you got to stay off the asphalt. You don't know what you're talking about. I got this job handled. And he said, we're going to lose our ass on this job. Uh, uh, you, we're going to do what I say. I said, no, we're, you're not. You're going to do what I, you, you, I know what I'm doing out here, man. I, I, this is my job. I know. And he gave me a little shove to get away from me. And I kind of reached him. He went and swung at me, grazed the side of my head. And then we end up, I wrestled him onto a trailer next to us. And all of a sudden, he grabs a chain binder while he's on his back and starts hitting me with a chain binder. A chain binder is a pretty heavy piece of steel with you know two two chain hooks on each side and a piece of steel in the middle, you know, 15 pounds, whatever it is. He's hitting me in the back with his chain binder. A guy that worked for me jumps in the middle. He's a big dude, so Mike's probably 250, 300 pounds. He breaks us up, and I'm looking at my dad. He's looking at me, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, I look past my dad, and there's this glass wall, and it's their cafeteria. I didn't realize it was 1215 and there's just tons of people, I mean, 100, 150 people up against the glass, 
and you can see they're excited about this UFC fight. And they didn't have UFC back then, right? But, but they're really excited watching this. And I look at him and I look at these people, I'm so embarrassed. I said, there's no way we're ever going to be partners again after this year. And he says, oh, well, you ain't buying me out and I'm not buying you. I said, you're going to have to either, either you're going to buy me out or I'm going to buy you out because I'm never going to be partners with you again after this year. He says, baloney, you know, you're, we're, we're, you're, you need me as much as I need you. And I said, nope, I, I, I got to tell you, this is not happening ever again. And so it took me all that winter going back and forth with them, hired attorneys and all that kind of stuff and ended up buying them out in the, in the spring of the year of 1994. And it wasn't the best deal in the world. He thought he got a terrible deal and I thought I got a terrible deal. Struggled after buying them out to stay in business. I mean, I had, I had some tough times where you know, we, I paid him more money than I made in a, in a year or two. And so either way, we got through it. We went from a couple million revenues to six million revenues within you know, five, six, seven years, and that became easier than to pay him off. In the long run, it was a good thing. It took a while, but we eventually made up. You know, I just learned over my life that we all get upset about things, but it's such a waste of time and a waste of energy, and it's such a bad thing, in my opinion, for your soul to be mad for any length of time about anything. I mean, you can be bothered by a mistake you might make, because you're only going to learn if you're bothered by a mistake that you make, right? But once you figure out how to fix it, then you should be happy that it was worth the lesson, worth the cost of that mistake, right? If you're a good student, you can take the negative in somebody and say, man, I don't ever want to be that. And there's plenty of positive from that same person. You can say, I want to be like that, right? If you can dissect that in any person, you're going to have some good stuff in your life. Some people would say, you know, that was, that was abusive and that, that wasn't right. It was, that's not a good upbringing. I say, no, baloney, that's a good upbringing. My dad made me tougher. I, I, okay, so I, I bounced later on. When I was 19, 20 years old, I got a bouncing job in the wintertime. So I always worked in the wintertime, factories, whatever it was, to, so I didn't have to dip into my savings. I worked in a bar, in a very busy bar, and I'd get hit in the side of the face, not know it's coming, or right square in the nose, and it'd be like, wow, that was nothing compared to what my dad delivered. <laughs> It prepared me for a lot in life. I could deal with about anybody, even today. Some of the toughest customers that you could ever have, you find out when you get to know them, they're good people, but they're a little scary, you know, bigger, you know, maybe louder or whatever. But usually when you break through, they're like my dad, they got hearts of gold that you can deal with easy once you know them. And a lot of times people are afraid of those that are outspoken. Well, guess what? If they're outspoken, you can figure them out fast and you understand where they stand compared to the person that doesn't say anything, that's afraid to tell you what they're thinking, right? Without my dad, I wouldn't have the work ethic I have. Without my dad, I, I'd be afraid to walk into some meetings. Um, I'd be afraid to challenge some people, probably. But uh, because my dad is who he is, he raised me to be outgoing and not afraid of very much. My, mice, I'm afraid of mice, actually, I gotta tell you. I'm afraid of mice. Besides that, I'm not afraid of much. And, and this unique life preparation that Gary got from his dad has helped him grow his company the Rabine Group, to $150 million in annual revenue, and their paving operation is the largest in the country. If you have paving, roofing, trucking, snow removal, or pipeline inspection needs, make sure you go to Rabine.com. That's R-A-B-I-N-E.com. After hearing this story, there's no way you'd want to work with anyone else. And by the way, the way he talks about his dad... I just love it because you could have looked at all that and just chalked it up to what a bad dad. But he looked for the good. He looked for what came of it that was positive and wrote the rest off because you're not going to have a perfect dad. It ain't happening. Now, if he was a really horrible guy who added no value, I get it. And some people have those kind of dads. And my goodness, you'd be better off like Eminem just never having known him, right? 
But for those that don't have perfect dads, but who taught those kind of lessons like hard work and endurance and perseverance, count yourself lucky. When we come back, more of Gary Rabine's story, our American Dreamers series, sponsored by Job Creators Network, continues here on Our American Stories. Return to our American Dreamers segment and self-proclaimed hillbilly Gary Rabine's story. The final portion continues here. So this poor girl, think about the hillbilly hit on you in a, in a bar in Wisconsin. I was 19 years old, she was 18 years old. I didn't know what to talk about. I was kind of nervous talking to this really pretty girl, right? Real pretty girls maybe didn't talk to me very often, you know. <laughs> but just, not totally the truth, because I, was, I wasn't not too rough looking, but I was definitely hillbilly. Anyway, so I'm talking to her, and within minutes I'm saying, uh, you might have seen the truck when you came in the door. You just see the truck, and she's like, what? I said, my truck, my truck is right next to the door when you walk in, the four by four with a lift kit on and the roll bars. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the, the truck with a the, with the cool paint job. You know, I, I put everything I had in this Chevy pickup truck. And she goes, uh, I'm really not much into trucks, so I probably wouldn't have seen it, you know. And she's thinking, what, what is this guy about, right? She's, she's looking for a way to get away from me, I'm sure. And I you know, got talking to her more and stuff and, and started getting along with her. But we got married at 21 and 22 years old, had three kids by 26. We stopped having kids because we really didn't think we could afford these kids, right? We had them fast and furious in a little over three years. So we've been married for 33 years now. And Cheryl's been an unfair advantage in a lot of ways. I mean, it's amazing that she had confidence in me because I was really taught by my dad that you're kind of a sissy if you believe in there's a God and all this kind of stuff. Even though my dad grew up as an altar boy and all that, at this point in his life, he was wanting us to be tough. And he, uh, he always taught us that, you know, oh, come on, you don't need God. You got me, you know, you know what do you need a God for? Hey, what kind of sissy are you, right? And uh, it's funny because he's gotten much closer to God in his late years of his life. But Cheryl, when I met Cheryl, was a strong Catholic faith. Her family was really close. They went to church on Sundays. We got married in a Catholic church, went to the pre-Cana stuff, the class before. Hey, I kind of got it. I was baptized Catholic, and that's about it. But I still didn't really dive into it much. Five, six, seven, eight years later, she kind of gave me an ultimatum. She said, you know, Gary, if you don't want to at least go to church with us once a month or something like that, I'm not sure I'm that crazy about this relationship. You're working seven days a week. You can't even take a day off a month. Could you just do that? And I said, you know what? I can do that. At the time I was partners with my dad, my dad got really bothered by this. I mean, he was really mad at me when I took that first Sunday off. And so him and I got into it and, you know, I quit at one point and I was going to do something on my own. Then. And bottom line is he was having a problem. And eventually I said, you know what? I'm taking every Sunday off from now on. I kind of like this thing with Cheryl on Sundays. It's kind of neat going to church with the kids. He was really mad for a while about that and then eventually got over it. But it really probably took me probably even another five or six years before I started to really fall in love with the Catholic faith and, and understand it better. And then through challenges in business and personally, 
got closer each time. And the biggest challenge we've had, you know, businesses, to me, business is easy. If, if, if I went broke tomorrow, I, I'd figure it out again and I'd jump back and, and get after it again. But health is something you can't control, right? And so my wife had brain cancer two and a half years ago. Brain cancer is a tough one. It's a terminal cancer, and she's doing really well with it today, but it took uh, a long time for her to get back on her feet. Two major operations, brain surgeries in a few days, and she wasn't supposed to live through a lot of it. It was like four different times that she really could have lost her life really easily and, and wasn't expected to get through the second surgery even. So that was a tough time. But in that time, we found so many different things that we know never would have happened in our opinions, right? In my opinion, if it wasn't for God above. And so I became much closer to my face since that time. And she's never once said, why me? Within 24 hours of her being conscious, after being out for a long time, she goes, I know why this happened to me. And I said, what are you talking about? You know what, what do you mean? You know what, why it happened, honey? She goes, uh, I've been reading all the CaringBridge things, all my emails. Of all the people I pray for every night, there's this handful of people that I pray for just that they would get closer to God. That's all I pray for for them. And every single one of them has responded in an amazing way, saying they never prayed as much in their life as they have since I've been down. She truly believes that that's why this happened to her. And sure enough, everybody we're talking about have gotten their life. It's a pretty neat thing. And I'm confident that without our faith that she's not here today. You know? I'm also confident that this cancer gets you much quicker than it's going to get her. Making money is great, but man, if, if you're fortunate enough that you have relationships, forget about money, relationships that we've created, that we've been able to be a part of, they're there for you in these tough times. That's the most important thing. So by uh, 37, 38 years old, saying, gosh, we could add more kids, we said maybe someday we'll adopt. And my three, four-year-old daughter in the back seat heard it, and she never shut up about it. She constantly bothers about, we should adopt. When are we going to adopt, right? She never forgot about it. I think that uh, inspiration comes in all different ways, right? We saw this the family was very close to us, and their kids played sports with our kids, and all of a sudden they show up at the game with uh, two little kids from Croatia, twin boy and girl, and they're so cute. I, I would always play with them and give them a hard time at the games and stuff and mess with their ears and, and tap them on the shoulder, all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I say, leave those guys alone. I said, no, they're too much fun. They told us a story of how it all went and the adoption. We're like, gosh, that's so cool. They're changing the lives of these little kids. They end up adopting one more little girl, Christine, and uh, same way, cute as can be, a lot of fun, and then we adopted our son Nick right after that. And it was really based on the experience we saw, how their family bonded and got closer than ever. They had one daughter. This daughter was a great big sister to these kids. So we ended up adopting Nick, and since then we've had people come up and say, you know what, we adopted a little girl, a little boy, because you share your story, right? So it's really neat that that can happen. A life gets hopefully put in a, in a position where there's, they have opportunity they would have never had in the environment they're in. You know, our son in Russia, those kids in Croatia. So Christine, the youngest one, is one of our MVPs at our golf club at Bull Valley. I'm a hillbilly that the only reason I could belong to a club is I bought it. They wouldn't accept me there before. She's an amazing kid. Always with a huge smile on her face and just does awesome for us. She's going to probably eventually grow out of that job and want to go somewhere else, but uh, we want to keep her there as long as we can because she's so good. <laughs> it's like having one of my kids there, though, right? I always get a big hug from her every time I see her, and I tell the story often when people are there. I said, see this girl right here? She's one of the reasons we adopted Nick. Nick.
And Nick could be standing right there with a big smile on his face, our son, he knows the story too. It's fun stuff. When you can do things like this in, in life, it's a blessing to be able to do that. My wife is a saint, but her biggest concern when we were adopting was she was all worried, like really, really worried about one thing. Will she love him as much as she loves our other three kids? Because if she can't, she won't be able to forgive herself. I said, Cheryl, you're going to love him no matter what. We're going to love this kid. If we love our other kids just a little bit more, we're never going to tell him, right? So what are you worried about? He's going to have a great life with parents that love him. If it's a little bit less, then it's a little bit less, right? I'm not worried a bit. So sure enough, uh, she's, well, I'm not happy with that. If it's, just a, if it's a little less, I'm not, not going to be happy. I'm going to be bothered for the rest of my life if that's the case. I said, don't sweat it. You'll be fine, right? And it was like six months later, because this little guy was a challenge. He was cute as can be and funny as can be, but he was not easy. He had some baggage that came with him. But within about six months, I come home one day, and she's as happy as can be. And I'm saying, what, what's up, man? You look like you had a great day. She goes, I realized today that I love him every bit as much as I love our three. I said, come on, I knew that all along. I've loved him since day one, you know. And, but she's the one really spending the time with him, taking care of him, going through all the issues with him. My wife did a ton of work to figure out his neuro issues and all that, and Nick is a normal guy today. I mean, he's really a normal guy. Also, my other three kids are definitely were driven closer together because of him, right? So bringing him in when my kids were early teens, they bonded with him a bunch, and they became closer because they had this little life in there, and this little brother that they all bonded around. He's been a blessing. These kids all know how to work. They understand work ethic, understand what it takes to get up and consistently get up to get to a job. As long as I can give them that, I think I'm giving them a better gift than a lot of other things. They don't need my wife or I ever again. I mean, if something happened to me and I lost every bit of money I have and every bit of my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They're going to make probably more money than I ever made that I could ever give them anyway. That's a good feeling. My son, Nick, he's got that Russian work instinct. It's pretty wild, but the kid, ever since he came here, two and a half, three years old, if I was working on the yard, he was working next to me. And he would be mad if it was raining out, he had to go inside. Now, this last summer at 17, he worked on our cruise, shoveling asphalt and laboring, and, and he loved it. He came home with the big, dirty as heck with a big smile on his face every day. He will do well in a job, whatever job he picks, he'll focus on it, and he'll outwork people around him. I just think that's the best gift you can give a kid. And if, you, and if they're super smart academically and they can be doctors and lawyers or whatever it is professionally, that's awesome too. But without work ethic, again, they're, they're not going to be the best of that either, right? So I think it's giving them a sense of whatever they're passionate about, driving themselves to be the best, hardest working person there is in that passion that they love. And if they can do that, they're going to be happy people. And what a great story, and what a unique voice. And if you enjoy Gary Rabine's voice, you'll love his podcast. It's called Ditch Digger CEO. Just search for the Ditch Digger CEO wherever you get your podcasts. I love the end there when he was talking about that work ethic. He was, was teaching his kids. And he had said, if something happened to me and my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They'll make more money than me. And I think so many of us as parents, we want to make sure that we get those kids to self-sufficiency, away from entitlement, and into work and a work ethic. Because that's the best thing you can do for your kids. And I think more and more parents are coming to understand that in this age of entitlement and this age of overprotective parents. Uh, we're not really helping. And I think we all know that, those of us who do it. And I think we all do it a little bit too much. Gary Rabine's story, Our American Dreamers segment here on Our American Stories. And again, send your American Dreamer stories to Our American Network 
Org. Someone in your town, someone you know, who built something from nothing. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American story and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests, folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times bestselling author. Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle, an epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. I think you need to take a run. <laughs> well, Dean, I'll have a beer, yeah. I'll have a beer and run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born Tell us about your parents and one of the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today. I was born in Los Angeles, so California born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister, uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school, and my dad was working two jobs. So I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. And she said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention. I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild. And I just remember sitting there in that classroom, just, you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention. So I think that's just all of us. (laughs) We're both alike, yeah. (laughs) And so tell me this. You, you, You then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid. Well, there's this idea of never stop exploring, and in running, it's very symbolic. You know, I ran, uh, I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old, so that's, you know, 26.2 miles, and I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run, uh, and then I heard about people running further than that, and I, I couldn't believe it. I heard about a 50-mile foot race, 
And I thought, that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. I got to try it. <laughs> so I signed up and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50 mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified. And I'm thinking, qualified for what? For the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western States 100 mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop. I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no, the starting gun goes off, and you run as though you're running, you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And, I, and that just was, so, it was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And, and then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was you know the most extreme temperatures on Earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. i got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will. And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers. And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly. And it was a hobby for them. It, they were tinkering for them. And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean. I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how, how odd. And I go, no, how American? Because we Americans do this all the time. Uh, well, you know, and let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX, uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the, the, the largest desert. It's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races? You know, you, get, you might get a, a medal or a trophy. I mean, there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these, but I just love the challenge of, of you know, of, of, of actually bettering yourself and that's what it comes down to it's you know can you um you know can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that you know you're just testing your own limits you want to know what you can do or can't do in the end dean and the challenges it's just your own personal challenge and you don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors do you well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like i failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do, it, it's, it's more about survival. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles or a 100-mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it's... It is really uh, just about survival more than anything else. What led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons. You know, a guy told me he was part of this 50 marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for 10 and a half years. 
And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have ten and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in ten and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and, and see the country and, and run while you're out there. See the country at you know eight miles an hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. And Dean is a writer, a raconteur, and we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Carnassus's story here on Our American Stories. And we return to our conversation with ultramarathon man, Dean Carnassus. And, and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tabula rosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. And talk about a little of that Greek DNA, because I, the, we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's been said that, you know, that, that no other... No other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're, <laughs> we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, Greeks are very independent. Um, even the, you know, the early Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks... You know, the Greeks have said, we can't turn anywhere else. I mean, we're kind of, we, we've got to help ourselves. They've been very self-reliant is, is one quality that I've seen with Greeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're a, a definitely a minority. I, I think that uh, Greek-Americans make up um, something less than, you know, half a percent of the U.S. population. But um, per capita, there are more Greek PhDs than any other class. And it's millionaires as well. There are more Greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is, again, per capita. It's a right. very small small base of people. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm Lebanese, and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And i got to tell you, Dean, not many pe- I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, to, to the uh, nature of the American experiment. And the American people, they're really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore them and get on with the rest of your life. 
and that's just how... <laughs> I've got Lebanese friends. I know what you're talking about. They're they one knuckle. They're funny people. Really great people. Yeah, yeah, we always just say let's just turn something really ugly into something funny. Yeah, um, we life's short. So let's talk back to that 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. You you started in St. Louis on September 17th, 2006 with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November 5th, 2006 with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights, some lowlights too, Dean, because there have got to be moments even inside you where you're going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Plenty of those moments. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for, for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them. So she'd basically homeschool them as we're driving around the country for 50 days. Their schools were sending them these lesson plans, emailing them to my mom, every Sunday night, and she'd teach the lesson throughout the week. And we all of a sudden became like the, a, a, a kind of this traveling um, roadshow where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious, you know, what were the experiences they were having. And then their parents learned about it. So now all their parents were following us. And people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out. Like, we'd have 50, 60 people show up at the starting line, of a race in Iowa on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's great. And, and yeah, no, and marathons were flying from Alaska. A guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood that can sisterhood that came together. Um, so that was the you know the the really uh, poignant and, and beautiful moments. You know, some of the low moments were. I remember running a, a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold. And the next day, I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees, running through the desert. And I remember finishing the race thinking, this is Marathon 19. I can barely walk. <laughs> you know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it um, and just, you know, kept that American spirit. Just said, you know, when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon. Just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom and splash some water in your face. You know, okay, that's great. Just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time. Okay, lace up your shoes. Okay, get out the door. <laughs> get to the starting line. Okay, just start running. Just put one foot in front of the other. Uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge as well as a physical one. Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not anything else but these two simple words, next play. Not the play before, and not three plays, five plays, in the next game, or the NCAA finals. Just next play. And so many of the kids and, and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating that way. Well, and it's more approachable. You're right. Um, it, with running, you know, it gets very grand. I just say, you know, instead of next play, it's next step. Yep. Next step. Next step. Because you tend to look at the mile markers, especially during a marathon. You know, you might be at mile, you might see a mile marker that says mile 18, which means, you know, you basically have over eight miles to go. And, you know, you might be cramping at that point. You know, you might just be completely exhausted. It's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done, don't do that. I just say, next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. 
next step, next step. So I really, I can relate to that next play mentality. Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think, how to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip, because, my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave, uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was jogging across the country like and by the way what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50 day in 50 state uh, adventure and what did your family learn well you know i i learned we're we're a very diverse country i mean you 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 hear this said all the time and it's almost cliche but the regional differences um not just with the food and you know the dialect but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Um, but the one, the one, you know, the the one uniting thing is that we're all free and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running and there'd be forty or fifty people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out in the, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm. And people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So, we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that, that divide us, right? Be it, you know, our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the God we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality. All of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of, you know, the food we ate, um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side. Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, you're not talking. And, I'll go with the latter. Yeah. yeah, I think I'll go with the latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people. You're not going to get them in an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultramarathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries, and just all around hurting? Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? <clears throat> you do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco. There was a marathon in Oakland. I, got a, I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So you do a lot of, of running. And I also do a lot of cross-training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, when I say cross-training, I mean what's called high-intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury, overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet my cross-training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and it also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as, possible, you know, as I can and do everything um, with that lens. And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise. Uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, <laughs> and it's just incredible. T t tell me this. In mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a, I'm a, I'm an introvert, um, you know, just by nature. So running to me, and if you saw where I ran up in the hills, um, north of San Francisco, uh, it's, it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think, that you know, unfortunately, that's that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species. Is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature, and to me, that's you know that that's part of the human experience, and it what's, it makes me feel spiritually uh, enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills. Um, and you know, it, it unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yep. It, you know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends, to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours. Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people 
who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable. And it's these wide open spaces and this peace of mind and having to fill up your own space. Well, I know, I, you know, it's, it's ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate in, into this as I'm running, and then, and then I type up my notes. And, you know, even Nietzsche said the only, you know, the, the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. <laughs> and, I, you know, so I, I can completely relate to what you're saying there. Oh, it's so it's so true. And and talk to us about the diet thing, because you had said, you know, eating really was a, a fundamental part of you and your performance. And so talk about that, uh, that, that, that regiment that you go through and what you eat and what you don't eat and why. Yeah, so I've, I've really refined my diet over the years, and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that, you know, leave me feeling lethargic and, you know, kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet, and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food. Nothing that, that has to go through a machine or be refined. So um, I don't eat any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was a Neanderthal man. Um, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's, it's just, you know, they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either, so it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can... I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped in everything I do. This, you know Jack LaLanne? You must know Jack LaLanne. Sure, yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book. Dean, um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can. Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey, and it's about the original marathon and the, the Greek runner Phidipides, or Phidipides, that ran the marathon. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well. So, uh, you know, ironically, right now, the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history. And I'm not a historian, but I delve very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that, to me, was fascinating. I think that's something that, that you know, we look at the, the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all this in the book. You know, there's one point in time where you say at the start, 
I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I had been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother? You just mentioned him. And that feeling running and starting to run by the Acropolis. Yeah, so that ancient brother, was his name was Pheidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemodromi. They were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was to, when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle. And it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and now it's time for a story of a song. Beach Boys frontman Brian Wilson found inspiration from the most unlikeliest of sources. In his autobiography, Wilson writes, quote, One of my favorite books was The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. It was a great way of looking at all the different ways people express love. Romantic love, friendship, charity, and sex. All of them are so important. So in 1966, Brian took the Beach Boys' patented sounds about summer and surfing and composed a song about God and love. Here's Greg Hengler. If everybody had an ocean across the USA... The Beach Boys seem to fall into two categories. Most people just think of them as the peppy, surfy, sing-along music... Goofy fun songs like Fun, Fun, Fun and Surfin' USA. And that's not an invalid way of appreciating their music. But I want to talk about the other category. A category that is best encapsulated in their 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Start it! And the song that most personifies this category is God Only Knows. As co-founding member of the Beach Boys in the 1960s, Brian Wilson created some of the most groundbreaking and timeless popular music ever recorded. But by the end of 1964, after endless days of performing on the road, Brian had had enough. Here's Beach Boys, Mike Love, David Marks, and Brian Wilson. We observed him being quite unhappy being out on the road and away from home. 
and not everyone's suited for that life. He couldn't handle a lot of the things that went along with that, like the traveling, the loudness of it. It hurt his ear. He was having trouble hearing out of his, you know, he's deaf in one ear. Well, I wanted to spend more time at my house, uh, write songs at home. So I told the guys I'm going to stop touring. Nobody could sing like Brian in terms of that falsetto, and he played the bass with us in live in our live shows. And so it was not a happy occurrence to see him leave the live group. Here's A&R executive at Capitol Records, Carl Ingeman, and music journalist David Wilde. Capitol, on the other hand, was thinking, well, if he can make more records and make them as good or better than they are, there's an upside to that, too. So there wasn't a great deal of, of worry on as far as Capitol was concerned. Brian Wilson's decision to get off the road and to get into the studio is one of the most profound moments in rock history because it really is when Brian Wilson, I think, intuitively decided that he was going to be an artist. That he could spend more time um, writing, arranging, and recording the tracks to which we would sing when we, we would come back off of a tour. The minute those guys were on the road, he was really in the lab uh, experimenting. Lucky lock guitar, such fun. Here's Tony Asher. I met Brian Wilson the first time at Capitol Recording Studios. I was working for an advertising agency. It was part of my job. I was doing jingles and writing commercials. Lucky lock it, kiddles, lucky lock it, kiddles. That was it. That was the whole jingle. And it was two notes and so effective. And so I go outside the studio and I walk down the hall and I guess I just ran into Brian and the two of us were standing there. We started talking. He said, sort of said, hi, how are you? you know? And I said, uh, great, how are you? What, what are you working on? And he said, oh, we're doing some stuff. Or, hey, you want to listen to this? Stuff? You know? I was very impressed with some of the stuff I heard in that session because they were not finished tracks. It was sublime. <laughs> I mean, it was really... I couldn't have imagined anything better, you know. Then Tony Asher, the 26-year-old writer of advertising jingles, left Capitol Records. I went back to doing what I was doing, and I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. A few weeks later, I got a phone call. I was surprised because I thought, well, why would he be calling me, you know? I mean, just to say, hey, it was fun the other day or something? I mean, it didn't seem to make sense. Well, he was good with words. For his advertisement, I asked him if he could write lyrics. He said, sure, I can write lyrics. And he said, well, I'm just sitting around at the piano. I thought maybe you might want to, you know, do some stuff together. You know, the boys are in Japan. And he said, I don't really have anybody to write with. So he came to my house. We started writing Pet Sound. The fact that Brian, like, just meets a guy who's in advertising and somehow ends up writing some of the most important lyrics of all time with with this man, Tony Asher. Here's Bruce Johnston and Mike Love. Brian Wilson, I've always said this for years, he was probably, what, 23, 24 years old. He was had the brilliance of Rachmaninoff and the command power of General Patton. He was like Stalin or somebody in the studio, the Stalin of the studio. We've got to go. Let's make it real tight, okay? So many lags or screws up in the first half of that thing all the time. Let's go. We would slave uh, 
at Western here in, in Hollywood. Then, you know, for a few days singing this thing, and he'd, no, it's not right, it's not right. It was perfect vocally in terms of the notes and the timber and the quality. But Brian had another idea. I mean, it was some, some vibration about it. Somebody had an impure thought. God only knows what I'd be without you. It sounded great. So, but he said, no, 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 do it again. So I said, I finally started calling him dog ears because he could hear, obviously hear something that most human beings cannot. This will be take one. Take one, God only knows. One, two, five. Nice, nice, Don. Okay, could we go to the spot where the... That spot? Here's Don Randy. Well, that, that part, it was... And it was bothering Brian, and we had done it a number of times. And my suggestion was, Brian, why don't we play it short? Almost pizzicato. Brian? Yeah. Why don't we do it short? Like we'll try it. One of the greatest love songs of all time begins with I May Not Always Love You, which is, and you know, it's the antithesis of what people want in a love song. We held each other up to a certain standard and said, you know, yeah, we don't want to do that same old stuff, you know, another love song. I love you because, you know, whatever. So when I would come up with a line like I May Not Always Love You, you know, Brian might have said at the time, what? <laughs> you know? But he would only have said it once, and if I said, don't worry about it, Brian, it's, that's a good line, he would have said, okay. And then he would listen to it a few times and said, yeah, I like it. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, the life would still go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to me, so what good would living do me? God only knows Here's Brian with engineer Mark Linnett and Brian's brother, Dennis Wilson. I think they like the lyrics because it's a great love song and a great love lyric. They all, they all told me they liked it. They said, I love this song. They told me that. There's Bruce. And there's a part you didn't use. Bob, right. Bob, Bob. Well, I always liked it. I didn't use that. No. When the first time I really got what he was doing was God Only Knows. He was able to organize his thoughts to a point where they're hypnotic, but yet entertaining, meaningful, and spiritual too. 
for want of a better phrase, it's where rock and roll becomes a religious experience. God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows what I'd be without you. Here's music journalist Keith Altham. It put the standards up. He said, this is how good it can be. You better go away and think about it. Mr. Lennon and McCartney, Mr. Jagger and Richards, Mr. Townsend. You better go away and think about what you're doing next because it could be this good. Here's Paul McCartney, who called God Only Knows the greatest song ever written, inducting Brian Wilson into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The 60s, particularly, he wrote some music that when I played it, um, it made me cry. And I don't quite know why. It wasn't necessarily the words or the music. There's just something so deep in it that there's only certain pieces of music can do this to me. And uh, just reach it right down in me. And um, I think it's a sign of great genius to be able to do that with a bunch of words and a bunch of notes. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. The story of a song, God Only Knows, here on Our American Stories.